to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Hosanna! Hosanna! The crowd shouted on that day. Hosanna in the highest heaven. After years of singing along with the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack, Hosanna, 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 ho. I thought, what does that even mean? What are these people gathered? These people that are laying down their clothes to ease Jesus' travel. The ones waving leafy branches over their head and claiming that this guy on a donkey is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What's this Hosanna that they bring to voice? Well, it turns out it's kind of an interesting word. And while it plays really big on this particular day, Palm Sunday, it's not used all that much in Scripture. You have to actually search for it, go looking for it. And its Hebrew root is found in Psalm 118, the one that the Rodriguez family read for us beautifully earlier. In verse 26, the psalmist writes, Save us, we beg you, O Lord. The first phrase comes from the Hebrew, Hoshiana, and it literally translated into, Please save us. But over time and over use and after tradition came, and through a Greek transliteration of the word, it came to mean, you are my salvation. That one phrase went from a begging of help in despair to a proclamation of divine deliverance. The crowds could have exclaimed, help me! Hosanna! Instead, when they saw Jesus coming into town on a donkey, they came to voice proclaiming, Oh God, my help has come. Hosanna! That simple flipping of the phrase in Mark's gospel speaks to everything about this day, this extraordinary moment in Jesus' ministry. It's the customary understanding of the occasion that Jesus' final entrance into the city, well, it was an inverse or an alternative to this military display usually expected with pomp and circumstance. And in a traditional military parade of the time, we would understand that the leader would enter on a grand horse, weapons drawn, troops on full display. The entourage would be met with crowds, and they would be hoisting symbols of royal reception, palm branches. And a procession like this, well, it would have one main goal, to showcase power. To showcase power by taking possession of a territory and of a people. But Mark's telling of this event offers us even more than a detour from leadership models. Jesus flips the entire script, and the ripple effects leave the world forever changed. 
It's not just Jesus that's embodying a different sort of style as the servant king, as the prince of peace. It is that. But it's not just that. He doesn't slip into mock humility or stagecraft and let the powers that be shape his story from this point on. No. Jesus grabs his own story, and he doesn't let it go. He doesn't leave anything to chance. Not one detail of this street theater goes without attention. Just think about it. We learn that the cult is exactly in the place where Jesus said it would be. We learn that the phrase, the Lord requires it, the password, if you will, well, it works. When the disciples use it, it works. And this carefully laid out plan moves forward. And while it can be really enticing to jump to this conclusion that Jesus showcases the ability to conjure and shape events before they happen, I ask you to think about the alternative. Jesus planned for the moment. He planned it. He knows where the cult is because he put it there. He knows what the password is because he made it himself. He's carrying out his own story, and he is making his own kind of entrance into this city. He will not let this moment be shaped for him. He will shape it. And that one action, that one action isn't just for his sake. It's for our sake. And it changes everything. With that one change, this one simple variation from the normative narrative of power being used to dominate and dictate, Jesus just doesn't change his own path. Think about all around him that changed too. Think of the crowd assembled there. Now, according to Mark and his own gospel, they aren't laying down palms as one would for a military ruler. They lay down greens from the fields, as they were customarily used to doing for a pilgrimage. The people know that this Jesus, he's a fellow journeyman, a pilgrim along the way. And they look to Jesus, in this instance, not as a master or a lord to control them, but as one who travels this way, this life that can be despairing and difficult, and joyful, and hopeful. They look at him and they see a brother, another who walks in the ways of God. And there, on the side of that sodden road, they change. They go from being peasants to pilgrims. They cease being pawns and turned into children of God. Hosanna! Our help has come. And that's not all that changed. This city that he enters into, the city, the one that is prophesied to be the epicenter of the messianic revolution, the one that will welcome from the Mount of Olives, the king that will save the people with might and strength, using the same tactics that are keeping the expendable class in their place. This city with Jesus' final entrance into it, is cast in an altogether different light. Jesus' pilgrimage trek does not end in a military roundup after all. 
It's headed somewhere. And if you notice, it's headed straight for the temple, the religious hearth of the region. Jesus doesn't want to take possession of this territory on earth. Jesus shows the city that the divine power will enter into the lives of God's people and free them from any power or principality that wants to crush, demean, diminish, or oppress them. God's not going to claim land or provincial power, but will enter our minds, our hearts, and our souls, delivering us from despair. Hosanna! Our help has come. On this day, after a day like yesterday, when we think about immense and holy power of calling into reality salvation in a time of despair, I can't help think of another script that is being flipped by an unlikely sort of leader. We have a country that since Ash Wednesday has watched kids Teenagers, fifth graders, right, gather and lead a nation. We watched as these teenagers of Stoneman, Douglas, and Parkland, Florida, have completely changed a narrative. Now, having experienced mass shootings of the past 17 years, our nation kind of follows a relatively predictable and rather morbid flow of events after each one of these mass shootings. We all know it well. Each incident or tragedy begins with outrage, vocal grief. How could this happen? It's followed by a call for prayers for victims and their families. And soon after that, there's a collective plea taking place, asking lawmakers and power brokers to Do something. Change something so that it stops from happening again. But not long after that, when the media turns its gaze onto the next thing, and we do too, the pressure lessens and the status quo continues. This is the script. The vulnerable are left vulnerable. The powerful remain in unchecked power. It's a cynical status quo, but it's a status quo nonetheless. It's a script we know all too well. But in the last month, these teenagers of Parkland have forced a departure from that narrative. Now, they've used strategy that was built upon the young shapers of the Black Lives Movement and many others, and they have determined that they will not retreat. It's what's expected. It's what's typical, right? But this never-again movement was born almost immediately following the shooting that claimed 17 lives. What did they do? Well, the students picked up their phones, right? They start tweeting, demanding justice, telling their own stories over and over and over again. They said yes to every interview offered them. They protested at the state capitol. They denied endorsing political candidates. They collaborated with others, and they staged a national school walkout. They turned down bribes. Within three weeks, they had changed gun law in the state of Florida. Now, it's not perfect, but they did it. And when a journalist asked why this generation was doing something differently to the tragedy of school shooting, one student leader explained. 
We are the generation that's been trapped in closets. We are the mass shooting generation. And they are saying, enough. The mother of Emma Gonzalez, that most visible leader of the movement, she was trying to figure out where her legs were in this sea change, you know, trying to figure out where her footing was. And the implications of this paradigm shift, well, they're moving well beyond teenagers, right? Beyond Florida and reach all of us at this point, certainly as we saw yesterday, as millions took to the street. But when Emma's mom was interviewed, she confessed. She said, somebody said to me, please tell Emma that we are behind her, which I appreciated, she says. But we should have been in front of her. I should have been in front of her. One mother's child, a handful of teenagers, has a nation of adults asking themselves, what the hell are we doing The turn towards life and the demand for its value, even in the face of death and tragedy, all while holding very minimal power. Well, it's boldly making a claim that salvation is possible. Salvation can be here. We can flip this script and call God into our unholy mess. Hosanna! Our help has come. There is power. There is power in thinking about Jesus at the start of this Holy Week. Because we can learn a lot about claiming salvation without guaranteed erasure of hardship. From how Jesus lived while he was facing imminent death. In meditation of Jesus' embrace of today's celebration, in full knowledge of his doom, I gravitated towards reading the work of Dr. Atul Gawande. He's a surgeon, a professor at Harvard Medical School, and an author of three books, among many other things. And in his book, Being Mortal, he shapes a new narrative about how we view death. And his claim is that the medical profession and all of culture, surviving kind of around it and thriving on it, views death as utter failure, right? It's failure. It becomes the opponent to life instead of a part of life. Now, I do commend the book in full to you, but one specific aspect of his work speaks to this unique moment of Palm Sunday, as we collectively stand in between this triumphal celebration of the day and we have the cross that awaits us on Friday. How do we do that and not see this day or the moment of us boldly standing with the crowd and claiming that our salvation has come, that God is with us, that God is saving us, from ourselves. How do we do that while we're standing in the shadow of the cross? Well, Gawandi writes about finding that balance between what we cannot control and what choices we still have. I think his wisdom can guide us in this day. He explains, we have room to act, to shape 
our stories. Though as time goes on, it is within narrower and narrower confines. The chance to shape one's story, he says, is essential to sustaining meaning in life. That we have the opportunity to refashion our institutions, our culture, and our conversations in ways that transform the possibilities for the final chapters of everyone's lives. And sometimes it can feel as though we're living lives that have already been played out, you know? It seems like there are no alternatives for some of us. Maybe we feel stuck in a hurtful and harmful relationship, or we can't find meaningful work, or we feel like we will remain slaves to addiction forever, or we'll always be alone. Life can feel a whole lot like death sometimes, but there is always the transformative power of choice, even as our choices grow narrower. And we, gathered here as Christians, at any moment, be it in despair or in triumph or standing right in between, we can choose to call out to our God, shout out, Jesus, help me, please. And in that utterance, in the bold proclamation that God can be called at any moment, we are reminded God is already with us. Our salvation has come. And I go back to Jesus, and I think about what might have been in his mind as he approached Jerusalem. He must have been tired, and he must have been terrified. He must have felt very, very alone, even around so many. He must have felt utterly powerless. But he did not give up his ending. He did not miss an opportunity to make people think once more, to push the powerful to discomfort again, to celebrate with his friends and even with strangers, to claim that God is the deliverer. He didn't give up shaping an alternative that generated freedom and life, not just for himself and the people gathered there, but for us. And so Jesus, on his last entrance into the city, embodies salvation, even on a path that is set towards death. Jesus claims deliverance, even as he surely felt despair. He turns a path towards death into an embrace of life. And with that, we can shout, Hosanna, our help has come. Amen.